I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will abstract selected articles from the November issue of JPGN for 2011. A complete table of contents and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or at the Society webpage at www.naspigan.org. There are two short communications in this issue. The first is entitled Nucleotide Sequence of the Sodium Hydrogen Exchanger 8 in Patients with Congenital Sodium Diarrhea by Baum and colleagues. Sodium absorption by the intestines is mediated by brush border sodium hydrogen exchangers, or NHEs, which include NHE3 and NHE8 isoforms. These authors have previously demonstrated a maturational decrease in NHE8 and increase in NHE3 in the mouse intestine RNA abundance and brush border membrane protein abundance over time, which suggested to them that there was a developmental switch in these isoforms, at least in mice. Recognizing that some patients with congenital sodium diarrhea improve with age, and recognizing the developmental switch from NHE8 to NHE3 in mice, the authors wondered whether NHE8 might be a candidate gene for this disorder in humans. They sequenced NHE8 from five patients with congenital sodium diarrhea and found no disease-causing homozygous mutations. They concluded that although brush border membrane sodium hydrogen exchange activity may be decreased, Exonic mutations in NHE8 could not account for the disorder in these human subjects. The next short communication is entitled Long-Term Follow-Up of Children with Sixth Thioguanine-Related Chronic Hepatotoxicity Following Treatment for Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia by Rawat and colleagues. 6-TG therapy in childhood acute lymphoblastic leukemia has been associated with hepatotoxicity and portal hypertension. These authors reviewed the cases of 10 children with lymphoblastic leukemia from the UK who had developed hepatotoxicity during 6-TG treatment in 2006 in order to clarify their long-term outcome. All 10 children had splenomegaly and hypersplenism in in 2006. Follow-up was for a median of 75 months. In seven of the 10 children, they found that clinically significant portal hypertension manifested by thrombocytopenia persisted long after cessation of 6-TG treatment. These data reflect the natural history of non-serotic portal hypertension and emphasize the need to continue monitoring these children who have 6-TG toxicity as they go on to adult care settings. There is an invited review in this issue entitled Psychosocial Functioning and Health-Related Quality of Life in Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Ross, Strawn, Russell, and Wilson. These authors critically reviewed articles published between January 1990 and December 2009 that focused on psychosocial functioning and health-related quality of life in young people with inflammatory bowel disease. Of 2,100 articles identified, 278 were screened in detail, and only 12 were considered methodologically adequate for inclusion, three rated acceptable, and nine rated good. These 12 studies yielded 
5,330 participants, 790 of whom had IBD, and 4,540 controls. Five main outcomes, self-esteem, health-related quality of life, anxiety and depression, social competence, and behavioral functioning were examined. Three of the four controlled studies addressing self-reported health-related quality of life found that it was significantly lower in the participants with IBD. The evidence for lowered self-esteem, self-reported symptoms of depression and anxiety, impaired social competence, and behavioral problems was conflicting, mainly because of the heterogeneity of the areas of functioning addressed, measures used, sample size, and the use or non-use of control groups. The authors were therefore unable to reach any conclusion on these other aspects of psychosocial functioning. The authors stress the need for better studies, which include more subjects, and which avoid combining children of different age and disease severity indices. They also point out that present studies have inadequately considered disturbances in body image in patients with IBD. The first original gastroenterology article is entitled Cost-Effectiveness Analysis of Adjunct VSL Number 3 Therapy Versus Standard Medical Therapy in Pediatric Ulcerative Colitis by Park and colleagues. Using a statistical Markov model that simulates a cohort of 10-year-old patients with severe ulcerative colitis, these authors asked, whether the addition of VSL number 3 to standard medical therapy in UC during induction and maintenance is cost-effective. They compared two strategies, standard medical therapy versus medical therapy plus VSL number 3. For both strategies, they assumed that patients progressed through escalating medical therapies before receiving a colectomy with ileal pouch anal anastomosis if the three medical therapy options were exhausted. The primary outcome measure was the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, or ICER, defined as the difference in cost between strategies for each quality-adjusted life year gained. The authors found that standard medical care accrued a lifetime cost of about $203,000 per patient, compared to a slightly higher cost per patient of $212,000 for medical therapy plus VSL number 3. Lifetime quality-adjusted life years gained was comparable for standard medical therapy and medical therapy plus VSL number 3 at about 25 years. A good incremental cost-effectiveness ratio was defined as less than $50,000 per quality-adjusted life year gained. Medical therapy plus VSL number 3 produced an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of nearly $80,000 per quality-adjusted life year gained, making this strategy cost-ineffective. Sensitivity analyses showed that four key parameters affected the cost-effectiveness of the two strategies, cost of colectomy plus pull-through, maintenance costs after, after surgery, probability of developing pouchitis after surgery, and the quality of life after surgery. The authors concluded that given their model, adjunct VSL number three for pediatric ulcerative colitis induction and maintenance of remission is not cost effective. Although they did point out that if only the post-colectomy period was considered, 
the use of VSL number 3 might turn out to be a cost-effective addition to routine management. This article is accompanied by a short but instructive commentary by Semnaliev and Lightdale, which is worth reading. The next article is entitled Treatment of Acute Diarrhea with Saccharomyces boulardii in Infants by Correa and colleagues. The aim of this study was to determine whether oral Saccharomyces boulardii can reduce the duration of diarrhea in infants with acute diarrhea. The study was double-blind and placebo-controlled and involved 186 infants under 48 months hospitalized within three days of the onset of acute diarrhea. Infants received either S. boulardii or placebo twice daily for five days. Stool samples were evaluated for rotavirus. The authors found that three days after starting Saccharomyces boulardii, only 30% of the infants still had diarrhea, compared to 50% of those getting placebo. When they evaluated only the patients with rotavirus, the difference was more striking, with 29% of treated infants still having diarrhea three days after starting treatment, compared to 64% of controls. This study confirms others that show that probiotic treatment is helpful in reducing the duration of diarrhea in infants, especially those with rotavirus. The next article is entitled Diagnostic Medical Radiation in Pediatric Patients with Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Wang and colleagues. In this retrospective study, the authors quantified the acute and cumulative effective dose of diagnostic radiation received by 105 children with inflammatory bowel disease at the University of California, San Diego. The number and type of radiology procedures for each patient were determined, and the cumulative effective radiation dose was calculated using standard estimates. The average cumulative radiation exposure per patient was 15 millisieverts. 42% of the patients were exposed to acute radiation doses of greater than 10 millisieverts, and 6% were exposed to a cumulative radiation exposure of greater than 50 millisieverts, a level which has been associated with an increased risk of cancer development. Patients with Crohn's disease, patients with an increased number of hospital admissions, and patients who had had surgery were more likely to have been exposed to higher levels of cumulative radiation than those without these features. These results are similar to other retrospective studies of radiation exposure in IBD and suggest that radiation-sparing procedures should be considered in pediatric patients with IBD to reduce their risk for cancer given an already increased lifetime malignancy potential. The next article is entitled, Anorectal Manometry May Identify Children with Spinal Cord Lesions by Siddiqui and colleagues. In earlier studies, these authors found that about 10% of patients with intractable constipation had spinal abnormalities without any obvious physical findings. Given that spinal magnetic resonance imaging is costly and may require sedation in children, they tried to determine whether anorectal manometry could be used as a screening test to predict which patients would have an abnormal spinal MRI. They examined the manometries of 10 children with constipation who had abnormal spinal MRIs and compared them to 10 controls with constipation but normal MRI. They found that the maximum relaxation of the sphincter after balloon distension was achieved with a smaller balloon volume in the children with spinal anomalies than in controls, 35 cc's, 
versus 23 cc's. The dose response curve of sphincter relaxation at different balloon distensions was shifted to the left in patients with spinal lesions. Anal spasms after balloon distension were noted in 60% of the patients with abnormal magnetic resonance images, compared with 0% of the controls. The authors concluded that patients with spinal cord abnormalities may show changes in responsiveness of the rectoanal inhibitory reflex, but that anal spasms on anal rectal manometry was the only finding that was unique to the patients with spinal anomalies. The first hepatology and nutrition article is entitled Immunogenicity of Hepatitis A Vaccine in Children with Celiac Disease by Sari and colleagues. These authors cite several recent studies showing that patients with celiac disease have a poorer response to hepatitis B vaccine than healthy controls, and that those with HLA-DQ2 seem to have a higher likelihood of vaccine unresponsiveness. The aim of this study was to evaluate the immunogenicity of an inactivated hepatitis A virus vaccine in children with celiac disease and the impact of the HLA type. 33 patients with celiac disease and 62 healthy, healthy controls were enrolled. Two doses of inactivated hepatitis A virus vaccine were administered intramuscularly at an interval of six months. Seroconversion and antibody titers were measured at one month after the first immunization and again one month after the second. Seroconversion and antibody titers were nearly identical in patients and controls. At one month, seroconversion was about 78% in both groups, and at seven months, seroconversion rate was 97 to 98% in both. There was no difference in antibody titers and no association between HLA type and the results of seroconversion or antibody titer. The next article is entitled, Optimizing Early Nutritional Support Based on Recent Recommendations in Very Low Birth Weight Infants and Postnatal Growth Restriction by Santera and Rigo. The authors quote recent studies and textbook statements suggesting that if adequate attention is paid to nutritional sufficiency in the first week of life in tiny premature and SGA babies, there can be a beneficial impact on postnatal growth restriction. These authors evaluated postnatal growth from birth to nursery discharge in 102 infants of birth weight less than 1,250 grams. They followed a protocol designed to quickly optimize nutritional support. On day one, nutritional intake was 38 kilocalories per kilogram with 2.4 grams per kilo of protein. Mean intake during the first week of life was 80 kilocalories per kilogram per day with 3.2 grams per kilogram per day of protein. On average, from birth to discharge, calorie intake was 122 kilocalories per kilogram per day, and protein intake was 3.7 grams per kilogram per day. The authors found that postnatal weight loss was limited to the first three days of life and that birth weight was regained after an average of seven days. Catch-up growth occurred after the second week in all groups of very low birth weight infants. Small for gestational age infants demonstrated an earlier and higher weight gain, allowing a rapid catch-up growth. 
This study confirmed that the first week of life is a critical period to promote growth, despite any other medical problems that might be going on simultaneously, and that early nutrition from the first day of life is essential. Postnatal weight loss may be limited and subsequent growth may be optimized with a dramatic reduction of postnatal growth restriction. The next article is entitled, Long-Term Changes in Food Consumption Trends in Overweight Children in the Hiccups Intervention by Burroughs and colleagues. Energy intake is a key modifiable factor for successful treatment of obesity, but long-term changes in dietary intake from pediatric obesity treatment programs are rarely assessed or reported. The aim of this study was to describe the changes in food intake of children from the Hunter Illawarra Kids Challenge, a six-month obesity intervention program from baseline to 18 months post-treatment follow-up. 160 overweight children five to nine years of age with a mean BMI Z-score of 2.89 were recruited. Dietary intake was reported by parents at baseline and two years after the cessation of the program in about half of the enrolled children using a food frequency questionnaire. Parents reported decreases in total energy intake, percentage of total energy from energy-dense, nutrition-poor foods such as sweet drinks, chips, candy, and fast foods from 42% at baseline to 34.8% at two years, with an increase in percentage of energy from nutrient-dense foods such as fruits, vegetables, dairy, bread, and cereals from 57% at baseline to 65% at two years. This is one of the very few studies that has reported dietary data of overweight children who participated in a treatment program with long-term follow-up. It provides evidence that improvements in food intake can be sustained for up to two years through decreased consumption of energy-dense, nutrient-poor foods, particularly sweetened drinks, and increased consumption of core foods. The problem with this study is that is the less than 50% follow-up rate and the absence of follow-up weights on the subjects surveyed. The authors have shown that it is possible to change dietary habits in the long run. What they haven't shown is whether the group as a whole changed their dietary habits. The next article is entitled, Septic Shock and Hypofibrinogenemia Predict a Fatal Outcome in Childhood Acute Acalculus Cholecystitis by Wang and Yang. The aim of this study was to investigate the etiology, clinical presentation, and risk factors for poor prognosis of acute acalculus cholecystitis in childhood. The authors reviewed the charts of 109 children under 18 years of age with acalculus cholecystitis over a 10-year period, looking at demographics, clinical characteristics, etiology, and outcome. Acute acalculus cholecystitis was defined as a gallbladder wall thickness of greater than 3.5 millimeters on sonogram with a duration of symptoms less than one month. The severity of sonographic findings was scored with one point each given for wall thickness greater than 3.5 millimeters, gallbladder distension, sludge, and pericholecystic fluid. The median age was 3.9 years. The most common clinical presentation was fever in 88%, followed by hepatomegaly in 72%. Elevated alanine aminotransferase occurred in 72% and thrombocytopenia in 
The most common causative etiology was infectious disease in 74%. All of the patients were treated non-operatively. 16 patients died. Among the children who died, there was a significantly higher rate of septic shock, anemia, thrombocytopenia, hypofibrinogenemia, pericholecystic fluid, and high sonographic scores. Multiple logistic regression analysis confirmed that the presence of septic shock and hypofibrinogenemia were independent risk factors that predicted mortality. This concludes the JPGN podcast for November 2011. For more information regarding the contents of this issue or to access the complete articles, visit the JPGN website at jpgn.org or the Naspigan website at naspigan.org. JPGN is the official journal of Espigan and Naspigan. The co-editors are Mel Hyman and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. Thank you.